have to tell you that I've been listening to, I've been getting bored with some of the podcasts I've been listening to. Do you ever do that? Yeah, I don't. I'm kind of tired of them right now. Like are I, you, Are you podcasted out even though you have one? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but then I go to music. I'm tired of my music. I don't oh, know what to listen to. Oh, feeling a little to. flat. Just... I've had a rare few like quiet drives. Oh, you know what? Every once in a while, when I can't find my thing either, yeah, I almost angrily just push the power button like boom because <laughs> yeah. I just need to be quiet. Yeah. And I'm like, that's what I needed. I know. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, I don't have any idea how I found this podcast, but I've been listening to <laughs> I might say my state of mind. Actually, I'm going to say it's the state of mind of a lot of the people I know. Uh-huh. But I've been listening to this one called The Anxious Achiever. Yeah, you sent me that one. That's the only one I listened to the past two weeks was that episode. Yeah, it was good, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. He described things well. So yeah. uh, there's been a lot of people, well, anxiety is talked about a lot right now. So, yeah. But I like the way that she talks about it in the workplace specifically. But man, by the way, yesterday I heard one about a about a guy who went to the very top of Google. Uh-huh. Oof. And he is not at Google anymore, but he talks about how... His anxiety was through the roof there, but he didn't even know what was happening to him. Do you it was think, so stressful I know. to work I there. listened to that episode and I thought the same thing. There, I I think every friend conversation I've had this week, because I was no, I was taking note of this yesterday, has been around like the the vibe and the mood of people has been kind of down. And everyone mm-hmm. I talked to had that sense of like overwhelm, not burnout, but more like overwhelm, tired, exhausted. <laughs> and Obviously, this has been going on for a while, but do you, I was kind of thinking like, where is it coming from? I think, I think it's because COVID revealed it. Like, I think we were all running way too fast as a American culture and like all workplaces want more, 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 more. So it's just like a systemic thing. Like we're all running faster, 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 faster. And then COVID like highlighted it with a big ass highlighter. (laughs) I think that's what happened. That's my current theory because I'm like, well, why it had is it to because it changed. So... Something changed so drastically in the mood of so many things. Yeah, because why? It's it's not like we weren't burnt out three years ago and now we are. No. Like the but there's something about this suddenly we're right. all realizing how tired we are, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I can't think of anything else that that is causing that <laughs> other than like the we realization. Noticed. I know. We noticed it. Well, I've been well. <laughs> I've been on that note too. I've been listening to some following some TikToks around. Well, I like to watch some educators and uh-huh. teachers. So I watched one from a college professor recently because I love laughing at the middle school yeah. and the high school ones where they're like, literally, my students come in and they're like, "So are we gonna learn something today?" Yeah. <laughs> like my point there is the the I don't care. Also, the I don't care and I'm tired mm-hmm. mentality is through the roof. Like. I'm telling you, they mm. were they were sharing that they just feel like their students just feel like yeah, they don't. And where did that come from? Like, they just don't care. I have an ongoing rant with a friend that, or they care about completely different things. So I yeah. just not say that they don't. Well, yeah. Care. And so my first thought is, oh, okay. Well, Gen Z kind of just started coming into the workforce a few years ago, so that also makes sense. If that's their attitude and that's like just new in the workplace, mm-hmm. that could be why. Mm-hmm. But no, it's not just Gen Z feeling that mm-hmm. way. Like me and my friend have this rant going on about. Any kind of um, like his this week was about an insurance claim issue with like the the well, lab. Well, you said to say insurance, and, and I'm already yeah. like and mine was sad. like <laughs> scheduling a haircut, and then you know a car appointment, and it, it seems like all of these places. It's so blanket statement, but like the workers just don't care. Yeah, they yeah. actually don't do any work to help you. They're just like, sorry, 
sucks to be you. And you're, and you're like, Wait, what did where we did do? that come from? Is that the same thing? They're not Gen to- Z. I don't, uh, I don't know. But it's it's making me, having a middle schooler, I've been looking at some of these. It's just like amazing. Yeah. The students, even yeah. that they're, I don't know. The world is changing. We're all feeling it. Okay. Yeah. So a couple serious like angles of that. Sure. You were ta- You were thinking about tone, the tone that leader sets. I, I've actually been thinking how it's, it is challenging for leaders when it's this discouraging yeah. to like still show up and what lead tone? well. <laughs> well, I was thinking, well, there was an episode on the anxious achiever that was talking about tone, which made me th- start thinking about when you're a leader, are you thinking about the tone that you're, that you're leaving? Like, I think yeah. that sometimes if you're frantic, your people start to feel frantic. Yeah. If you're, if you're too calm, your people, you know, it's like, yep. but then I was also thinking, what is my tone? Yeah. What tone do I leave when um, I leave a room? What tone do I leave in my house? And also I started to think, whose tone do I really appreciate? Well, what is the tone I have? I know. I mean, I... I just started thinking about tone. Sorry, I just went on a tone rant. (laughs) I think it's great. I've been thinking about the same thing because it's... I struggle personally with what's the right balance of authenticity and uh, like forcing a different tone. I agree. Because, yeah, I notice sometimes when I... I'm not setting a good tone as a leader, but it's because I'm trying to be real about how I'm feeling right now versus like yes. maybe putting on a different hat and like showing up a different way that's different than how you feel. Mm-hmm. Is that is that being inauthentic? Is that leading well? Where does that line happen? Right. Because you're right. So many leaders are they're also burnout, you know, to stick on this topic. Yeah. And then they're showing up that way, though, which doesn't help anybody. Yeah. And, and, and I do think that the leader needs to push their tone a little bit towards what the team needs from them. Yeah, I agree. With some authenticity. With authenticity. <laughs> I, I agree. I think it's a both and. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do. And that's the point. It mm-hmm. should be hard. Leadership is hard. It is hard. <laughs> but uh, my husband says I'm the tone setter of the house. Oh, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> is that just news to you I now? Was, yeah, but I was like curious in your house. like. Um, yeah, it's more Ashley than me. Okay. Gotcha. It can kind of depend for us. Okay. It can depend on the situation. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think about that sometimes. I think, oh, you know, we, we watch it sometimes, you know, that you don't like tailspin the whole, the whole house yeah. if you're not in a good place. Yeah. yeah. It's a so. good thing. And I thought so related to that because it's come up in a few different coaching conversations where I'm coaching a leader, meaning like somebody more senior in an organization and they're going on and on about just like how much stuff they have going on. And then people need so much more from them. And I've been saying to them to kind of encourage and comfort them. Like most people, meaning the people working for them under them do not at all recognize the energy spent by a leader. Mm-mm. And I say it that way because I didn't realize until I started getting in leadership roles. And mm-hmm. I was like, mm-hmm. Holy crap. Like mm-hmm. the amount of energy that, you have to spend as a leader in your role yeah can be like a hundred x the person below you and they think Mm -hmm. that their day your day is just like theirs it's not and you're just going oh my gosh and you also still need 10 more things for me and like i keep hearing this in sessions Mm -hmm. and again it gets me stuck in the same place like so yeah what do they do about that it's tricky because they are in the leadership role Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so there's a reason you're paid more and you have that title 
Well, the guy from Google that I was listening to, he now coaches leaders because he went, he hit absolutely the rock bottom. He was managing a thousand, an org of a thousand people. Mm -hmm. He he was like, of course, this is no surprise that he's going to say, you got to take care of yourself first. And I think what I'm learning in this and with those people in the coaching sessions is the whole just verbalizing and being honest about where you are, Mm -hmm. communicating. Like how often do we see in organizations where the leader never communicates what's going on, mm-hmm. what they're experiencing and what they're not even their feelings, just what they're working on, mm-hmm. what's going on. Yeah. It never really gets talked about. So of course people don't know how much they have going on. Yeah. And then they start complaining it's like my leader's been sometimes. absent or something <laughs> like, mm-hmm. well, if you knew what they had going on, <laughs> yeah. you might think differently. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's tricky. I want to just give a shout out here to mm-hmm. wrap up this topic because oh, yeah. we've been hearing a lot in our um in the comments on TikTok about mainly um coming from Gen Z but but from many people saying that like the workplace right now is expecting them to wear way too many hats and they actually have to do two jobs for the price of one or they have to wear like 10 hats in their role and this mm-hmm. is just not doable and i don't know that i have anything to say except that like i i hear and get that and i just want to acknowledge it as a podcast that talks about the workplace because it is hard and it is getting more cramped. Like, like workplaces are getting squeezed from every side. And so they are asking more out of people and people are also burnt out and tired and realizing that. So they're realizing how tired, whereas maybe four years ago they would have just powered through, but, um, it's tricky. It's tough. And I think it's happening everywhere right now. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> Cause there's not enough people to, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I think the complaints are really strong language. I think people are really angry about it. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to diminish that anger, but I do think um, if you have a healthy workplace to, to create discussion around it is probably one of the healthiest things to do. I agree. I think some people in the comments though are like not at healthy workplaces, no. so they can't I even do that. I hear that more often than I do healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just thought I'd do a quick personality chat with you around only I was thinking about this because I had a bad weekend (laughs) (laughs) Uh, personalities and expectations of weekends Uh oh man I think different personalities have different very clearly different expectations of weekends yeah (laughs) actually I think that okay if if I'm thinking about relationships it's I feel like in general Uh in my relationship I would say that if we're ticking along in life normally Uh we get along fine on the weekends, but if life's, we get along great during the week, but the weekend is when we fall apart. Yeah. Cause if it's anything like us, it's like vacations where we do it totally different. We do it different. We do it so different. Whereas during the week you're doing your own things at your own jobs. Yes. (laughs) I think I just wanted to just say it, Mm -hmm. that it's hard that it's, you got to communicate about your expectations of your weekends sometimes because what, what what one personality needs maybe more downtime and lo- lack of commitment to events versus someone who needs events yeah. quite whatever it just causes or getting i like to get stuff done yeah like that to me is a fun weekend yeah that's not fun to adam yeah you make me think about a friend because it's not only within the relationship but also without with friends yeah because uh a friend is a hardcore planner and we'll spend time together on a weekend and so what happens is he's planned so much 
that not only his spouse, but also me and my spouse, are exactly- none of us get an essay. Oh, gosh. And so to your point, sometimes what's funny is he might be thinking, this is a great weekend. Everything's Everybody going perfect to plan. <laughs> and we're all like, you're killing us. Yeah. And, and sometimes yeah. it's great. And we like that. But the conversation part is is uh, tricky. Yeah. All right. We've been having each of the greenhouse coaches on the podcast one episode at a time for them to share about their um, area of expertise and for you all to meet them since a lot of people haven't met them yet. So today is Katarina Polanska, and she is one of the newest greenhouse coaches. She lives uh, in Ibiza, Spain, off the coast of Spain, an amazing island uh, that we hope to have retreats at soon. She has lived in, I think, around 10 different countries, and she has studied at places like Oxford and Cambridge and just has a wealth of knowledge and experience to bring to the table. But she's also a really great coach because she herself has been through a lot of experiences. She's an ICF certified coach, but she's also an entrepreneur of her own. So she coaches on topics uh, all across the board with people leadership, with personal growth, sales, DEI, areas that she's um, that she has consulted and coaches in. But today we're talking about relationships because this is actually her key focus area in coaching. Um, The thing I really love about it is it it comes out of a lot of her personal experience and she shares the story today. But um, her journey was one of being kind of a high achiever type person and then eventually realizing that she was bringing that same achiever mindset and behaviors into her relationships. And that was actually, um, in a sense ruining it, ruining things. And so uh, when when I first heard her story, I really resonated with it. I've been for years now kind of start just start probably just starting to unpack some of that myself of how that achiever mindset in our work can seep into our relationships and actually what needs to shift uh, to make those relationships better. And so we're talking today about some of Katarina's own story, but also how do you deal with needs and conflict within relationships to not just kind of solve the problem, but actually make it a place where the relationship thrives. So uh, let's dive into the conversation. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Katerina. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Why don't you just um, give a brief intro of yourself for those who are new to you? Yeah, sure. So I'm a greenhouse coach and also a relationship coach. So I have my own relationship coaching practice. And yeah, I live in Ibiza, which I moved here about two weeks ago. Pretty exciting. And I'll I'll touch upon that, I guess, later in the podcast, why I'm back here, part of the part of the career journey. Um, but yeah, I do relationship coaching. I typically work with people who I call hardworking high achievers. So people who are very driven, very ambitious, very smart, and very good at life. But there are certain blockers, certain things that they can't seem to figure out. And very often it, it's the relationships. And this is certainly me throughout most of my life and most of my peers. So I'm very passionate about about okay. helping us figure this bit of our lives out. Yeah. 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 That's what made me most excited about this conversation. Because mm-hmm. the ones we have had around this topic, it's even been eye-opening to me. Mm-hmm. The way us achievers take that into relationships and think that we're winning and we're actually not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So we'll get into all Mm -hmm. that, but first 
Um, I always ask everyone, what was your very first job? Mm -hmm. Because it's kind of fascinating. Well, so what was, what was your very first job? Yeah. So yeah, I, I was actually debating between two jobs. One of them, the truth is, was my very first one, being uh, that waitress at a Tesco cafe in the UK and getting fired for not following their unsanitary food protocols. I refused to give a vegetarian, like a meat, meat dripping bit of meat, <laughs> of a potato. I just refused to do it and I got mm -hmm. fired. But actually, um, that was a very short lived job. I think I lasted about three weeks. I, I really didn't last very long there. I was very ashamed. <laughs> Um, but then my second job, which came very shortly after, was pretty cool. I remember I lived, I grew up in the town that Roald Dahl, the writer, grew up in. And so one day I was walking here from school and I had the Roald Dahl Museum. And I, I was thinking at this time, I think I was 16, I was like, I need to get a job. I have nothing on my CV. I didn't even have a CV. And I remember <laughs> popping into the Roald Dahl Museum and just saying like, hi, I need a job. And they were like, okay. <laughs> yeah. They were like, that's okay. great. Twice in my life that's worked. And uh, yeah, and then I didn't even have to interview. They just said, okay, well, you know, the rate was like £10 an hour or something. Come in on Saturday. And so I, I started, didn't even know what the role would be. It was being a kind of a jack of all trades. So I was doing the shop floor, selling at the, at the role that I'll shop. But then I was also a storyteller. And that was probably one of the most fun jobs I've actually had. What I had what to do. That... Yeah. Yeah, they had a... Because like children come to the Roald Dahl Museum and I'd have to walk around like cleaning the museum and like spraying chocolate spray into the chocolate factory and all of this stuff. Uh -huh. And then there was like a big trunk of all of Roald Dahl's, uh, like the, the revolting rhymes, that book that he wrote. There was a trunk mm -hmm. of all of the different little outfits. And so my job, which I actually grew to not resent, but after a while I was like, oh, I can't do this anymore, was at breaks throughout the day, to dress up in the different outfits and then reenact the revolting rhymes, the short stories to the little oh, kids. But the little kids who were coming in were like pretty high net worth kids because the neighborhood is a really affluent <laughs> neighborhood. Uh -huh. And they were not impressed with my acting skills. I remember having to dress uh -huh. up as like the big bad wolf and then having uh -huh. to quickly change to the red riding hood. And, and they're swearing in the re revolting rhymes. So I, yeah. yeah, I ended up like reading out one of the rhymes really quickly and then accidentally swearing in front of the kids. And anyway, <laughs> it was fun, very fun, full of drama. And yeah, very random. This is a high show. talent bar for a <laughs> job. Yeah. childhood job. Wow. Yeah. I was just like mowing lawns and sweeping <laughs> floors. <laughs> it was like acting out everything. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Well, give maybe a Cliff's Note version of what has happened from then till now? I mean, what has your career path oh, looked like? Oh boy, where to begin? Um, I'll go linear because <laughs> I actually think I've got one of the weirdest careers out there. And who knows, it's probably going to get even weirder. Well, that's good. That's I think that's what's so helpful for people yeah. to hear because it's it's actually more the norm than the the exception. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so after that, I went to... Well, actually, before I even went to university, I did my first uh, life coaching certification my dad is a coach and he, he paid me to do it and so actually even before I went to uni I was like full you know entrepreneur mode I'm going to create a coaching business I'm going to be a coach I had my own like domain and everything my little business cards <laughs> and, and I uh -huh. kept saying I'm not going to uni I'm just going to go and be an entrepreneur even though I was very academic and I decided to go to uni in the end and I carried on doing my little coaching business there teaching students how to be high achievers <laughs> that's my thing <laughs> 
now you're undoing your early work. <laughs> yeah. This is awesome. Yeah, I was teaching them like how to be more high achieving. Um, yeah. Anyhow, <laughs> but yeah, people loved it. I remember at one point I made like a healthy amount of money for a student, right? In my in like one hour of coaching, and I loved it. I really loved it. But then I ended up focusing on my studies. And so then when I left uni, I originally wanted to be a journalist because I'd been I did a literature and humanities degree. And the recession had happened in 2008. So I remember looking at jobs and thinking, I can't live in London with this salary. Like, mm -hmm. there is no way I can live in London with this. So then I read the book, What Color Is Your Parachute? I love that yeah. book. And I, I just took it out of a box yesterday. I love that book so much, <laughs> yeah. And I, I did the, the, kind of the flower petal exercise thing. And I landed uh -huh. on this realization that I need to be in the wine industry because I realized I like wine. I like people. I like socializing. The industry back then was pretty much male dominated. And I realized, well, if I come in with this you know, good university degree and I stand out a little bit, I could probably go quite far. So second time in my life, I was walking down through the street of London, <laughs> through Barrow High Street, and I saw a beautiful wine shop and I popped in and said, I need a job. And they told me they can't give me a job, but they can give me an internship. And so I got uh -huh. an internship there where it was a really brilliant deal. For three months straight after uni, I worked there for free, but they paid for all of my wine training. So all of my WSCTs and all of that. And I was in this beautiful shop where I got to taste wine every day and really learn about it and work with customers. So loved it. Really great internship. I cannot, I think I've done so many internships in my life and I think they're really great ways to get your foot in the door. Did you offer to do skits when people brought children into the wine shop? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Though I can imagine that would have been a... I, to be honest, I think I was a skit half the time getting <laughs> getting up in my up in my hair with all the wine. But uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I loved it. I did, okay. I did like wine tastings and stuff. And then mm -hmm. then I was like, okay, I need a proper job now. So I was commuting quite far to the to the head office up in middle of England, and the commute was like I couldn't do it. So I needed a job in London eventually. And I remember I heard about this one company that seemed really cool, like startup y vibe. And basically, I just I, I've never really done this. I emailed all 10 people that I could find on their website, like five page cover letter and my CV declaring why I want to work there, how I want to build a business, blah, blah, blah. And now I know in retrospect that actually it was a tiny office of 10 people and everyone got my email. At they the all got time. it at the same time. <laughs> and they yes. were like, who is Katrina Polanski? But see, this was the early glimmers of your genius because <laughs> I actually listened to a whole, you may have heard, uh, Gary V did a big thing on, on this uh -huh. idea. Uh, it, it was the, the entire strategy was exactly that, right. to kind of message people who are com in competing roles mm -hmm. as peers, mm -hmm. the same thing. So they feel like they need to be the first yeah, one to yeah, have yeah, the idea. Yeah, yeah, because ev everyone was like, did you just get an email from Catherine? Did you get an email from Catherine? They're like, who is she? And <laughs> suddenly you're a big deal yeah, in their eyes. They were like, who is this That person? was genius. Uh, so I got invited to the office that evening, like literally even like an 8 p.m. <laughs> interview, which uh -huh. was quite scary. And I went in and it was like a blind wine tasting, very intense okay. interview. Um, I think they were kind of like feeling me out. And anyhow, long story short, I ended up doing like four interviews there, got the job. And then the day before I was meant to start, they folded that job because they'd actually realized they couldn't afford me at that point or they couldn't afford the role. I was devastated because it was like my first job out of uni. I really needed the money. I really liked mm. this company. So I had, you know, I'd been hustling there for six weeks trying to get the role. And then 
oh yeah and then I remember again like I don't know why I don't do this anymore I should do more of the stuff then I remember <laughs> my friend called me and she was like there's a party at Cuckoo Club tonight in London you should you should come it's gonna be good networking yeah. and because this the champagne house they were a champagne company they were distributing to all of the high-end nightclubs in London a little part of me was like you know what I don't feel like going I actually feel really depressed because I didn't get the job and I really want to work there but I'm going to go and see who I can meet at this club who might know another job you know maybe they know them so I went I had my CV tucked into my little handbag and I went and I met the bar manager and I basically got talking to him and I handed him my CV and he must have been thought I was a complete lunatic but anyhow the next day he actually gave that CV to one of the people at the company that I wanted to work at and they were like crying out loud her CV's arrived again she won't let go and that's when I remember the the founder called me and he was like okay fine 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 we're gonna hire yes. you we're gonna hire you and so I had my first well, job. it's kind of amazing that's so that's kind of amazing though because that is I mean we're often teaching people about the having curious conversations, mm-hmm. getting in front of people. Mm-hmm. You don't just put your CV on a stack or, you know, your resume online. And I think that uh, there's there's something really helpful about the obliviousness yeah. of just, you just kind of abandon all the rules and norms, but there's actually something good in there sure. that, that works when people aren't a natural at that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's completely, it was like an earnest... I don't know. I have no shame. Like, I'm yeah. just going to mass outrage. Obviously, they put me into sales, which I was like, what? No, I'm like an <laughs> academic. But then I and my They're like, no, no, no. You've clearly already proven. <laughs> yeah. And then, so my first ever gig at sales in that company, they gave me a big crate of champagne and it was winter, freezing cold. And they were like, go sell it. I said, like, go sell it where? They were like, just sell it to someone in London. I was knocking on my mm-hmm. gallery doors. Really grueling. But, and they paid me nothing. But eventually my salary increased and but that basically inspired me to then I, I realized I really like the industry I really like the kind of entrepreneurial spirit they were a very entrepreneurial company and uh-huh. that inspired me to then meet my future co-founder who I actually built a company with in Spain so my second job was again I was very ballsy I had nothing to lose to be honest right I was like at the time I was 23 and I packed up my bags moved to Spain here actually i can see my old apartment from the window it's just funny oh wow yeah, yeah, like just across the uh the, the bay and i started <laughs> building a champagne company i was lucky my co-founder was more experienced he had 10 years more experience than me so he kind of led on everything but yeah we built a we built a distribution like a, a wine a wine and champagne distribution company here so did that didn't make that much money i will say but i think the year of experience was so powerful because again, I was young enough, I had nothing to lose, to be honest. You know, my, my cost of living was so low and the life experience was so profound. What I did realize though was that I'm probably too young to be running a company for the rest of my life. Like I probably need to go and learn from a, a bigger corporation or something. And so I ended up leaving that company, going back to the UK, working for a, a bigger wine company. And it was up in the north of England. I was like, I don't want to be in the north of England. This doesn't mm-hmm. work for me. I need to be nearer to London. Or actually, maybe I go abroad again. And at that point, everyone was going to Dubai. I think everyone's going to Dubai now. Dubai is still kind of this place that everyone's, you know, mythic place we'll go to. Yeah. But back then, it was 2014. There was a big influx of people going over. And it was either that or Hong Kong. And I remember thinking, I mean, why not? Like, why not? So I originally looked, 
I was on LinkedIn, talking to everyone that looked interesting in the industry. I met a guy from Hong Kong. He had like a potential job for me. And so I was looking at Hong Kong. Then I met a guy from Dubai. He had a potential job. I remember I was like evaluating, which is wild now to think that my life could have been so different. Yeah. But again, it was just like, what have I got to lose? I'm 24. Like, I'm just going to go and see which country. You know, I was like on Google, like comparing the two countries. <laughs> yeah. And um, in the end, Dubai won for me because it was a bit nearer. Mm. The cost of living was a bit lower. I realized I can like have a nicer apartment. And so then I accepted this job uh, again in, in the drinks industry, moved to Dubai. I remember landing and being like, oh, I'm in the Middle East now. <laughs> I hadn't really, yeah. I hadn't really done my due yeah. diligence properly. Um, <laughs> but it was cool. And I ended up being in Dubai for like nearly three years. I didn't enjoy it that much, to be honest. Like I, it wore away at me a little bit. But as it mm. wore away at me and I stopped loving the drinks industry because it was very different there. Like I couldn't advertise the way that I was used to advertising because it's illegal. it was back then it was illegal to advertise alcohol. And so my my enjoyment for the industry left, but my passion for human rights went up because actually mm. living there was still so much construction. And I don't want to, oh yeah, I'm still a bit scared to speak too badly, but I just saw things that made me really passionate about, yeah, justice and human rights and I was yeah. really fascinated as well about gender inequality and how, you know, I'm an Eastern European woman, but have a British accent. So people don't really know. And actually because of my nose, people thought I was like Iranian. So I kind of got away with a lot of things. But once people did know that mm. I'm from an Eastern European background, my kind of ranking in the gender hierarchy like plummeted. And I would see the same with men, you know, like the different races would have different hierarchies. And it was all really fascinating and horrific to me. And I basically realized, it's like, I don't think I want to do the champagne stuff anymore. I think I want to go into international development or international aid. I want to have an impact in the world. I want to go to charity, but I don't want to start my career from scratch. I've like yeah. been hustling so hard to get to a salary where I'm actually able to live. I don't want to have to go back to minimum wage. And so I knew that the only other way to get into another industry, not the only other way, but one of the main ways to get into another industry would be to do a master's degree. Or do, you know, do some kind of study or qualification. I couldn't afford it. So I basically made a plan to stay in Dubai for an extra year, save up and apply to do a master's degree. And all of that, I mean, it sounds like it was very logical. Truth be told, it was like six months of me being really, really stuck, like not knowing one thing of my life, crying a lot, being really depressed and thinking like, I want to get out of this industry. I don't know what country I'm going to go to. I don't know how I'm going to, like, yeah. I don't know what to do. It was really hard to break into the nonprofit sector because it was, it was quite a, like everyone was very educated there. And anyhow, so for me, it was a master's degree. And then, yes, I applied to different unis, got into Oxford of all places, which again, I didn't think I'd even get into there and actually got a scholarship to go there, which was, a, when that happened, I thought it was like an April Fool's joke. I you honestly didn't believe it happened. So went hmm. and studied gender studies there. One of the best things I've ever done. And informed the relationship coaching that I do now. And then after Oxford, I went into the charity sector full time. Um, started out in, I originally started out in like international development consulting. So kind of private sector consulting, but in the aid space, I lasted three months. Like I went in and I was like, I smell corruption here. I smell things that I don't know if I, you know, can, can get on board yeah. with. And the organization I was uh -huh. with, I'm not going to name them. I, but they were uh, caught out quite badly by the media mm. for doing very unethical things. So I lasted three months. Mm -hmm. Again, it was a case of 
holy cow, what do I do now? Like I've yeah. relocated my life. I now live in London. I've got this apartment. I've got like a 12 month rent um, commitment and I hate my job and I need to quit and I don't have money coming in. So actually I put yeah. on Facebook, I listen to Facebook. I need a job. <laughs> I will do anything. I just need cash flow. And yeah. before, and I want to work in the charity sector. And that actually led me to one of my dream jobs, funnily enough, because a guy replied and uh, he's still a friend and he was like, oh, this organization called Founders Pledge, you know, they're hiring, talk to the founder. So I went and had a coffee with the founder and he told me that they had a listing they were going to put up to hire someone to be uh, like a growth kind of sales assistant or executive. Uh -huh. And uh, he, you know, loosely interviewed me and he was like, come in and do a proper interview. So we did a proper interview. And by the end of the day, I had the job. And honestly, that was one of my happiest jobs ever. Like, it's so funny how I came with such a low expectation. Like, I just need <laughs> 500 pounds a month cash flow to pay yeah. my bills. Uh -huh. And it ended up translating into one of my favorite jobs. So what did you love so much about it? The team were lovely. The team, it's very different now. My understanding is it was like a much bigger setup. Back then it was like eight people, eight to 10 people. I think I was like the ninth person or something like that. And we felt like a family, honestly. It was like mm. that kind of like startup-y hustle without the horrible hustle. It was like, okay, we work, you know, from a little office and we'll have lunch together and everyone's doing a bit of everything, but we all know each other. We're all like, we're all buddies really. And yeah. we're all, you know, driven by the cause and we're all passionate about our work. And it was a really nice family dynamic that I loved, like a proper community. And it felt really yeah. meaningful. And that's when I realized I'm really good at sales, actually, because I started, I was ultimately like selling um, a pledge, a commitment to do philanthropy. And yeah. yeah, I just got into the swing of it. And I was like, oh, wow, like I can have serious impact in the world if I'm doing this stuff and um, building relationships with, mm -hmm. with different clients. And that actually led me to building a relationship with a really cool entrepreneur out of, um, he was living in Turkey at the time. And he he created a system to an AI driven system to identify when bombs are going to be hitting civilians in Syria. It was during kind of the Syrian war. So he was doing really impactful work. And when I was on holiday that year, when I was working at that uh, philanthropic tech startup, I went to Vancouver to visit a friend from Dubai. I just went there on holiday to see him, and I ended up falling in love with Vancouver. I thought it was a beautiful city I'd ever been to in Canada, and that's when I was like, I think I want to move. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, I remember I was like, how do I do this international move from England to uh -huh. Canada? You know, I'm like, I'm not in a rush. I want to take my time, but I think I do want to go there. Also at the time I was like 27. I was like, I don't think I'm going to meet a life partner in London. It's time for me to kind of go to maybe a smaller city, slow down. I want more nature. I want like a different mm -hmm. lifestyle. And so I got on LinkedIn and basically found everyone in my alumni group on a, in Vancouver and like systematically messaged every single person and was just like, hi, <laughs> what do you do? How do you like living there? And I sense a theme yeah. in your life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and made actually some really powerful connections. And then I made one connection and um, I mean, I'm inviting her to my, to my second wedding. Uh, we met on LinkedIn, a fellow alumna. And we got talking. I was very candid. I was like, you know, I've heard Vancouver's a bit boring. How is it for you there? Like, you're you're from New York. And we got on the phone. And then she was like, oh, let's meet for a drink when I'm in London. I didn't really even understand what she did. And then she came to London. And we ended up having a drink. And then she was talking. And then she was like, you know, I'm actually hiring. 
I'm hiring for like a head of growth to help me build this impact investment vehicle. And I didn't know what impact investing was. And then after bonding and getting to know her, I then met another co-founder. And then again, before I knew it, I had a job and I moved to Vancouver. So that was like big move. Uh-huh. I, I want to keep going, but this is like very meandering it's, career story. It's fascinating. You're hitting, I mean, what countries have we not hit yet? <laughs> yeah, no, good point. I mean, I spent a bit of time in Brazil, but I've left that one out. Um, but uh, that was when I was in Spain. But yeah, so then I was in Vancouver and I did this philanthropic um, initiative for a year. And it was incredible, hardcore startup, you know, working out of my little studio flat. And we, I was like creating like everything, the CRM. I was just creating everything from scratch, like the website and trying to build, mm -hmm. like really build from scratch as we're, we had a 10 million euro target in one year which is an insane target to try and fundraise for. And so at the end of that year, we all burnt out. Basically everyone in that program had like the three of us had burnt out and the program kept going. We kind of handed it over to the folks on the ground, but uh -huh. everyone pretty much has burnt out. I decided at that point, I was like, I don't think I can do more philanthropy. I think it's just too emotionally taxing and I'm so married to the work. I'm not going to marry anyone else. Like I'm just obsessed with, the philanthropic initiative. Uh -huh. So I decided I'm going to take a sabbatical. This is one of the dumbest things I think I've ever done. I told, I was like, I'm taking a sabbatical. I'm going to go work for the Canadian <laughs> government. Cause <laughs> so again, it was like on LinkedIn, find more alums, find people who work in government. Cause I heard that they were doing pretty cool things. And I met this really lovely woman who connected me to this other guy. And then again, I had an interview and didn't really understand what they were doing, but it, I eventually learned it was like an R and D VC. And they needed someone to be head of growth. And so I was like, okay, like let's explore this. I'll get to know the ecosystem and I'm having impact here in Vancouver. It was not a sabbatical. It was actually one of the hardest jobs I've ever done. Like it was like easily 12, 14 hour days and mm -hmm. extremely grueling work and a lot of bureaucracy. And yeah, I didn't last long. I lasted a year, which I'm impressed I even lasted a year. And the next job's an interesting one because again, it was, LinkedIn, I'd, uh, I'd been looking around in Vancouver. This is actually from back when I first started looking at, at people in Vancouver, okay. a guy that I'd connected with, who worked for a company called Mindgym. And I was like, I don't know what this is. Are they like headspace? And we'd had a few conversations and then we'd fallen silent for a year. And I'd actually interviewed with them in 2019 and they told me they're not hiring in Canada. And so I was like, okay, in 2020, he called me back a whole year later. And he was like, are you still interested in working here? And I remember like that call came inbound and I was doing a 12 hour work day for that government job. And uh -huh. I actually started like screaming down the phone. I was so happy to hear from him. I was like, yes, yes, I, I want to leave. I don't like my job. <laughs> and so I ended up moving to this behavioral science consultancy. And I was the only hire out of Canada because the guy who hired me, he left. And that was like my first job that I lasted two and a half years <laughs> <laughs> At this point, I was like 29, right? So 29, yeah. and I finally found a job that I actually genuinely, place I liked, job I liked, role I liked, people I liked. Like I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave Vancouver. I didn't want to get to a different place. And so, yeah, I really found my feet there and I got promoted to um, a regional vice president and became really like good at sales. That was kind of the thing that I was doing there, but it was also behavioral science and consulting and got to know the Vancouver ecosystem and Canada and really, really amazing work. And I finally got to use my gender studies degree doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And mm -hmm. I honestly thought 
this is a job I can probably stay in for like six to 10 years. I can probably stay. Yeah. I can, you know, I was engaged in Vancouver to my ex and I thought my life is just going to be working here. Like, that's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm kind of retiring. And <laughs> it felt great because I've been like, I've been moving around so much in my twenties. I just want to be stable. And then two things happened. One, I pulled off the engagement, which didn't really affect my career, but it did make me think, do I want to stay in Vancouver now? Like I've been here five years. Mm -hmm. I don't have a support network here. I am very far from home. And then the second thing that happened was the Ukraine war happened and my dad's in Ukraine. So when that kicked off, I was like, okay, I think I need to get back to Europe. I tried really hard to relocate back to Europe with that company, to their London office. Like I was negotiating for about six months. I really wanted to make that move, but ultimately it would have meant I had to get a demotion. So I would have lost my uh, regional vice president title. I would have taken a big pay cut. And I was like, this just doesn't make sense at this point in my career. And better up, a big competitor of theirs, a big coaching company, they'd interviewed me like three different times. They kept interviewing, they kept coming after me. And so I remember like picking up the phone and, and talking to them again and being like, okay, all right, let's do this, <laughs> let's do this. And so yeah. I think it was like 12 interviews later, that was the most intense interview process of my life. I, to the point that by the end of it, I was like, I have to get this bloody job. Like, I have to get this job. But yeah, I yeah. got the job and moved to London and started up my new life for like the hundredth time in London with Better Up. And this time round, it was interesting. This time around, the international move felt awful. Like every international move I'd done before was filled with excitement and energy and like, wow, where am I now in Vancouver and Dubai and Spain? This time in London, it was like, oh, what have I done? What mm. have I done? And the first two months, I was so depressed. I honestly was like, I don't believe in regrets and I don't think I make mistakes, but I think I make it made a big mistake and I think I regret this move. I didn't enjoy the work at all. I found the work was not what I thought it would be and it was just... It gave me a really clear sense of like, okay, I don't think I want to work in a, in this kind of a tech, like big tech startup. This company is too big for me. There's a lot of things that I really kind of had felt. And then I just didn't like London. And like, I got quite depressed, to be honest, and was really like, mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm doing with my life now. I feel quite lost. I genuinely yeah. felt really lost. And so I was doing a lot of therapy. I was doing a lot of coaching. I was very lucky at Better Up to get so much coaching, like incredible yeah. coaching. And so yeah, I was getting coaching and therapy and then I decided I'm going to take a career break and just give myself time off and, you know, train to be a coach myself because I really enjoy it and probably work with women because I'm a woman on the side and maybe help them leave toxic relationships with my initial thought. And yeah, and then a week later I met my now husband and before I knew it, we were both on sabbatical together. We were both essentially traveling the world because he was from Canada and we met in London trying to figure out where can we legally live that we both want to live in because <laughs> he didn't want to yeah. go back to Canada he didn't want to live in England and so we were in Colombia for a while we were in Albania we were in Slovakia we were traveling all over and before I knew it I found myself building a coaching business partly because I was like I'm not used to not working right it was very odd to me to not be working and partly truth be told fear I was like I don't yeah. like not earning money freaks me out. Never not yeah. earned money. And even though I had savings, it felt like I feel like it's foolish, which this is wrong. I would never advise to anyone. I think I almost wish I'd had the nervous system strength to take a full year off 
I didn't. Uh-huh. Like, I didn't. I, I think partly maybe because of calling off the engagement and Ukraine war and all of the different like micro, micro, whatever, micro traumas that had happened. I think my nervous system couldn't handle the experience of not earning money and traveling. Like it just, yeah, there was something very odd about it. And so I started building this business and now mm-hmm. I'm here 11 months later and I'm still building it, obviously fully in the relationship coaching space, realizing I really do love this, still figuring it out because I miss, you know, elements of like working with people like you and do kind of more high level stuff. But um, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. I actually don't know. That's, like it's yeah. fully unknown. Well, given the path to now, I, it's already pretty interesting. So yeah. do you have a take on, I'm curious, since you have been in big company environment, small startup, your own business, lots of different countries and contexts, what's your take on, is it better to have experience in a big company before starting your own or or do you actually get too soft and lose the edge of being able to grind being able to break all the rules and you know some of the things that entrepreneurs benefit from if they haven't been in a big context that's a really good question and i I think one i've grappled with most of my career actually because i'll never forget calling the oxford university career service when i was like 28 they're like well what do you think i should do and almost being like shamed by the career service of, well, you screwed up. When you left uni, you should have gone to work for, what's the company? It was like Unilever or a big (laughs) company where you can learn Uh marketing. Learn marketing. You can learn marketing in a big, big, big company. Your goal, you're made for life because you have a really fundamental skill. You understand how corporations work and you're set. And I remember thinking like, but I didn't do that. And I think I I would have hated that to be honest for me personally. Like, unhappy I spent my 20s traveling and seeing the world and but I don't know sometimes I do wonder would I be much wealthier and more established if I'd gone into a big corporation and stayed there for a decade I think I would have potentially made more money and been more quote-unquote successful would I be happier though I don't know and would I have had such a rich life no I don't think so yeah yeah I grapple with it too. And when I get that question from others, it's hard to answer yeah. because I feel like I gained a lot of organizational skills and yeah, understanding mm-hmm. how corporations work from being in that context that have helped me in business. But I also feel like, gosh, it, there's so much edge lost mm-hmm. and there's so much, um, if you're in that context too long, then you actually lose sight of reality. Absolutely. Like the, the marketing comment is funny to me because I, Currently, in today's world, I actually think what you learn about marketing in a big corporation applies 0% to small business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, the fundamental principles and concepts translate, but but the way a big company and a startup actually do brand and marketing is completely different. 100%. No. It's, but... I don't know. It's a tricky topic. Yeah. Okay. Well, but we're here to talk about yes. relationships. So... Let's get into that. Mm-hmm. And I would I would love to just hear some of your backstory. I mean, you've already shared a bit mm-hmm. of the timeline, but um, your experience that led to this kind of relationship coaching, because I'm I'm personally very into this topic mm-hmm. lately as well. As you know, I've been doing a lot of relationship coaching mm-hmm. uh, with Ashley and it's so 
uh, it's so difficult mm -hmm. and yet it's so fun and hopeful at the same mm -hmm. time because, uh, you can make a lot more progress than you realize, yeah. or you uncover things you didn't even realize were there. And, uh, I just think it's one of the most important things. Mm -hmm. So I'm really, anyway, I would love to hear whatever you want to share about that, but I know that people are, um, people appreciate hearing some of the personal yeah. experience because I think there's still a lot of taboo around. Yeah, this. for sure. And it's funny because I was just talking to a woman about it earlier. She's founding a dating app and she's still single mm. in her forties. And she was kind of talking about her struggle. And yeah, I think it's not talked about enough and it has very real implications on our lives. Like who we marry or who we spend our life with has huge ramifications on our careers, like really huge. And, I mean, I, I speak from my experience. So yeah, I mean, I spent my twenties, I was in a couple of long-term relationships. I think a lot of us are. And then I was single for about five, five years uh, after my dad left. So I think that was probably a bit of a trauma response there. And I was living in Dubai and everything. And then, yeah, around 28, when I was in Vancouver, I had this mindset of, I, I'm 28. I should probably be married or kind of edging towards that now I'm a bit late to the party which is funny because my thinking got shifted around that but um sure <laughs> I remember being like okay I need to make this actually a thing and so it's not like I was being ultra strategic about it but I was certainly in a headspace of I want to make something work now and I met this guy on Bumble and we you know we had a few dates and we was, we went on to have a really picture perfect lovely kind of very traditional cliche relationship. And I, I mean that in the best of senses, like it mm -hmm. looked lovely. Like our Instagram was wonderful and we did all of the wonderful things. And I remember thinking in my head, like I finally have what I've always wanted. I finally uh -huh. have the thing that feels like it. I'm now successful on some subconscious yeah. level. Like I always wanted someone to post about me on their Instagram. I always wanted to have like a beautiful engagement shot on my, you know, my Instagram. I always wanted to have someone to get like wine tasting with and to travel and to meet the parents and to have in-laws and it really was lovely and I think and then I was planning a wedding and that was so fun and exciting and like it was all COVID at this point so I didn't get the full experience like I couldn't go and um, try and dress with my family but I realize now that I was caught up in the narrative of what a really lovely relationship should look like and I was dismissing the very real fact that internally I knew, I think I knew from, I honestly think I knew like really early on. I think he knew as well that we weren't right for each other. And mm. I think he was kind of forcing it probably out of like pressure from family and society and parents, and whatever. I think I was forcing it. I don't think either of us even realized we were forcing it. I think it was just uh -huh. this feeling of this is it. Like, yeah. Right. Like I didn't know that there could be more. And there were not, there were times when I couldn't sleep at night that I would be thinking like, is this it? Like <laughs> is, you know, uh -huh. my, my career was great. I was earning great money. I had a beautiful apartment. We'd bought an apartment together. Our relationship was like, you know, ostensibly fine. Like, yeah, we had our own issues and stuff, but I was remembering like, I don't know if this is, is this it? Like, this yeah. is quite yeah. scary. And it's a hard thing in the moment. Yeah, it's one thing to reflect back on it. But in the moment, and I had some similar experiences mm -hmm. where 
what do you have to compare to? Exactly. I mean, where, where's the measurement? Exactly. So even if you feel something like that, how do you, it, yeah, it's hard to know. Exactly. What, is that, is that substantial? Do I do something with exactly. that? <laughs> exactly. And then again, the, the taboo part of like, am I the only one yeah. feeling this? I mean, the more and more I get into uh, relationship coaching for myself, but also work with people in that space is, wow, every, everyone tends to think they're alone mm. in it, in the struggles. And yet there's, there's no more common denominator yes. than challenges in your, in your core relationship. I mean, it's the hard, it's the hardest relationship yeah, in your life. Yeah. Uh, very well said. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I had this thought that I think, I, I don't know if a lot of high achievers think this. I know a lot of people I work with think this, but I had this sort of like, it must be something wrong with me. And I, mm. you know, my parents are divorced. So maybe I have a commitment phobia. I don't know. Or maybe I'm just really anxiously attached. I don't know. And so I went down this rabbit hole of, again, because I worked in behavioral science, of basically using a lot of my income to read about stuff, download programs, do group trainings, do one-on-one -on -one coaching. Like, goodness, I did everything from like attachment stuff to looking at masculinity, femininity stuff, to looking mm. like a little polarity work, to doing like psychedelics and just really everything that I could get my hands on because I was so determined to understand. And yeah, I remember I had a feminist therapist who gave me very cutthroat words that I was like oh I don't like that I don't think I like her I don't think I want to see her again I think when we have that reaction to any coach or therapist we know that they're probably saying some truth right because I was I was so triggered I was like I have to block and delete her like I'm never gonna talk to her again horrible woman um uh -huh. but she basically pointed out without going into too much detail a very fundamental value misalignment between me and my ex like very clear value misalignment and they really haunted me and we were having, we were having like marital counseling as well. And there were things coming out there as well that were kind of pointing to really obvious, you folks aren't compatible. Like this isn't really going to work. And if it's going to work, it's going to work over like five years of hard, hard, hard work, hard slog. And yeah, I just, I didn't, I didn't want to wait five years. And I think one of the best bits of advice I had from the marriage counselor was like, you have to give it a deadline. There has to be a deadline in your mind and a boundary around what you need to see within X amount of time to know that you're going ahead with this. And I, I wasn't married yet. And for me, it was six months and I held that boundary very tight. And, you know, at the end of the six months, I didn't see the improvement. And then there was other stuff that was revealed that made it very clear that we weren't right for each other. Um, sure. But yeah, I ended up calling it off and... It was interesting because I actually have a, a friend who's gone through the same thing where on the one hand, there's kind of a very clear decisiveness of like, I can't go through with this. I can't stay with this person. Obviously, you still love them. That doesn't mean you stay with them. And love isn't enough. And there's a clear kind of like hold, like I have to make this move. But then there's this also fear of, well, what's going to happen next? And then when the move is done, in my case, like, you know, he moved out and separates finances and everything then like the crippling reality of it all hit me uh -huh. and my friend just you know she left her husband now and she's going through the grief and it was hands down the hardest thing i've ever done in my life and i had mm. anorexia as a teenager and i overcame that you know like my parents divorced and that was really bad but like this was the hardest thing and it, it's not 
we were only together for like two and a half years, like three years. Like, I think it was the hardest thing because my whole identity and sense of self imploded because I was in my early 30s at this point and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life now. How did mm-hmm. I get this far? I thought I was doing everything right. I honestly thought I was doing everything right. I thought I was being proactive. I was fixing the problem. I was getting the marital counseling. I was doing the therapy, doing the plant medicine. I was doing bloody everything I could. How is it that I've messed up and this has imploded so yeah. badly? And it was, I don't want to use like ego death as a term, but I certainly hit like such a rock bottom low. Mm-hmm. And I just, yeah, it was hands down the hardest thing I've ever done. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. What did you realize coming out of that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think what I realized is I had never truly, like, I had never really, and this might sound really woo-woo, but I'd never really let myself quote-unquote be seen. And what I mean by that is I realized I'd not been authentic throughout that relationship. And I'd mm-hmm. not been authentic throughout a lot of my career actually when I really when I really lost my sense of self it was like but of course in retrospect we weren't right for each other that was pretty clear like you know later it came to me and of course I don't this isn't my dream job like it pays the bills and you know have a nice shiny title but I'm not spiritually fulfilled with this work I wasn't spiritually fulfilled in my relationship. I just realized that I'd been kind of almost like, not people pleasing, but like wearing this kind of perfectionist-y or like this kind of mask of yeah, everything's fine. I've got it figured out. Everything's okay. This is nice. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Well, yeah. when we first talked about this, I had that same word, the mask that, um, because I'm I'm still uncovering and realizing the extent of this, yeah. but that there's probably multiple masks I wear, mm-hmm. but in my relationship for a long time, it was, it's, um, I'm not sure how to name it still, but it's something like, well, I don't, I don't need anything. Mm-hmm. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of the mask mm-hmm. is saying to others and definitely to my wife, like, I'm, I'm good. I don't mm-hmm. need anything. Because I'm just someone who like solves problems and mm-hmm. gets things done. Mm-hmm. And I like to carry others, mm-hmm. you know, fix things for other people and make sure they're comfortable. Yeah. Well, then the problem is you add up a bunch of years of that. And and what I've been realizing is, wow, A, she doesn't necessarily know the real me mm-hmm. sometimes because that mask is up. But B, it's hard for then her to help meet any of those yeah. needs if she doesn't even know they're there. Yeah. And... Um, I, I just appreciate how you, your story and how you frame the achiever, bringing that, their achiever mindset into Mm -hmm. relationships is almost the source of a lot of these problems because we, we also, um, talked recently, had a realization that we can, we, if we're having to figure something out together, we go off separately and try to solve the problem independently. And then bring our solutions back mm-hmm. to each other. And and it never works. And um, a, a coach called this out in a way that similar to your story was hard to hear in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to 
delete and reject. Yeah. And, and then it's been sinking in and we've been realizing, wow, that is our approach because that's what we've learned in our work and that's what we've been praised mm-hmm. for. And that's kind of the mindset we brought mm-hmm. in and that doesn't work. We have to solve problems together, mm-hmm. not separately. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't know how to do that mm-hmm. because those masks are up and it's, it sounds so easy. We'll just talk, talk yeah. through it together. And we didn't yeah. know how we actually, yeah. we still are really learning. How do we talk through something, work through something together mm-hmm. And I think it just requires a lot of vulnerability that just, yeah, it's, it's difficult. 100%. It's hard to go there. It's so hard to go. And like, yeah, you're spot on. And I, there's two things I want to say to that. And thank you for sharing that. One is, I think when we have that mask, we don't know we have that mask because frankly, it's all I knew. I, I can pinpoint to like a handful of times in my life. One was on like the Hoffman process retreat where I, you know, I hit mm. another kind of like mini rock bottom in a good way. But there's a handful of times when I really felt like free and like, you know, my shadow was free to be expressed and the kind of the ugly quote unquote side of me. Outside of that, like, yeah, I wouldn't do that, of course, because I was always tempering myself. I was always being mindful of don't be too much or don't be that angry, you know, jealous, Slavic woman or whatever it was, whatever narrative I'd, I'd been fighting. Uh-huh. We don't know that we've got that mask. And that's, that's where. I think most of us have a mask. We just don't know it. And yeah, with that high achiever, of course, we're trying to do everything right, right? Like, but no one ever teaches us how to do things properly. I think one of the, to your point about how hard things can be in relationship when it's, you know, when it's in the right relationship and you're, you're navigating that conflict, you're navigating tension. I can't remember who it was, but it's this kind of idea and my, my teacher, Lisa Page, she talked about this too, but it's this idea that our biggest work, I think it's John Wineland who talked about this, but like our biggest work in relationship is to train our nervous systems when we're with another to stay in integrity and to stay grounded and to not go into collapse. Mm. And what he means by that, or you know, what the teachers mean by that is so often we can't hold conflict the energy of conflict. We can't hold the energy of disagreement. We can't hold the energy of we've upset our partner or something that they've done has upset us. And so we go into collapse. And when we go into collapse, that's when the trauma responses start coming out, whether it's getting angry, whether it's crying, whether it's shutting down, walking away, whatever it might be. And that I think is one of the hardest muscles that we have to build. And something even last night, you know, I was tired. I was simply tired. My partner said something to me. It wasn't remotely upsetting if I'd been full of energy, but I was tired. I'm low bandwidth. It was past 11 p.m. And he said something that I got a little bit triggered by. And I could feel the collapse because I was like, I feel that collapse now. I feel myself just like (laughs) folding in on myself. And I was like, pull myself back up and stay here. Well, and that's part of what I love about this type of coaching, counseling therapy is the first step of getting aware of those things is actually a huge step yeah. because now in that moment, I can notice the feeling and be objectively looking at it and maybe start to manage it better versus it just happens and I don't even know what's going yeah. on. I'm actually now a victim exactly. to it in the moment. Exactly. exactly. So I've been on a similar journey. We've been, uh, I'm actually curious your, your thoughts and advice on this because, um, 
when when there is a triggering moment or emo- emotions are heightened, we've tried some different ways to kind of pause and, and come back to mm-hmm. it when we're in a more grounded state. And I have found that for me, it helps that in the heat of the moment, I am not, I'm definitely not going to be my best self mm-hmm. or, um, or be helpful to her mm-hmm. in the way that I talk. But later, if I can come back to it, and for me, it usually means a little bit of pre-thinking, like, what do I want to say? Maybe even how I want to say it. Then we can have a productive conversation mm-hmm. where we're use, you know, um, I don't know if we want to talk about like mirroring mm-hmm. or, you know, some of these techniques to to listen to mm-hmm. each other and and try to understand each other. It it feels for me impossible mm-hmm. in the moment yeah. of heightened emotions, yeah. but it does feel more possible. Still very very hard, but much more possible if we can come yeah. back to it. Yeah. When 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 we're cooled down yeah. later. Yeah. I don't know. What are you, what are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, no, but you're spot on. And I think that kind of that timeout, basically, which is what you're saying, right? That the timeout is one of the greatest gifts we can give each other when we're getting to that conflict state. It's e- it either has to be a timeout or like a, a soothing down of the nervous system. So mm. again, it's kind of this idea that like we can only, we're responsible for our side of the street, right? to the, but our side of the street, our commitment to a partner is to try to meet their needs and to try to regulate their nervous system. Like that is fundamentally one of the, I mean, at least I believe if you're in a monogamous relationship, some, I know some people might believe that you just, you do you and you do you and you're both independent. I think if you're in a committed relationship, there is a responsibility to trying your best to try and soothe and like gift your, your partner with calm with peace with letting mm-hmm. them be heard right it's the loveliest yeah. thing we can do and so when we feel ourselves getting activated it's really a case of do i have the strength right now to keep bringing my own nervous system down to calm and can i actually lean into my partner and either like mm-hmm. take their hand or like rub their shoulder or, you know like breathe slower and try to regulate them yeah. down because that gives them the sense of being heard and seen and empathized with that touch. Can I have the strength to say, I hear you? Yeah. Right? It's so hard. <laughs> so hard. It's so so hard. hard. I just, I'm forever fascinated with, I mean, you know, my dream for Greenhouse yeah. is to have these types of re- retreats around this mm-hmm. type of content. And it's forever fascinating to me how this sounds so basic and yet, in the moment, oh. it's one of the hardest. We're so hijacked, to do. right? But that's why we're so yeah, hijacked. But that's why it's like I think the timeout's brilliant because I think until yeah. we've until we've learned that or trained that muscle of being able to just breathe and self soothe and calm ourselves down yeah. and then lean in to calm the other, then removing ourselves from that situation is one of the best things that we can do. Because really, it's just about yeah. how quickly can we begin to soothe? How quickly can we soothe ourselves and soothe the other? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to play, you know, the devil's okay. advocate that I would be listening to okay. this. Because even just a few years ago, I would say, yeah, but then we're never going to come back around to it. Because mm. it's a hard topic and we're busy mm-hmm. people. So no, we're never mm-hmm. going to come back to it. So in the heat of the moment, I want to resolve yes. it now or yeah. work through yeah. the tension now. And... um our our coach had us start relationship check-in uh-huh. meetings. So, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm a nerd on like calendar yeah, blocks yeah, and yeah. having 
systems around things. So we did this and it felt so cheesy at first. Mm -hmm. We had like a business meeting recurring on the calendar once a week for us to check in on us. And we failed so many attempts at this, the iterations, it would, one day I just, I probably need to share it and and show like a diagram Uh of all the versions we tried because at first we were like, okay, we're here at this meeting. And then, you know, triggers just start Mm -hmm. going off Mm -hmm. when we try to talk about anything or we want to avoid it and we reschedule Mm -hmm. it or Mm -hmm. all these things. So I don't want to give anyone the impression we just started this and it was amazing. We've been working at this for some years, but now most of them go pretty well Mm -hmm. where we have, we have pre-thought like what we need to talk about, how we're going to talk about it. And yeah, we work on this thing mirroring, which is another way that we've, that we can help calm yeah. each other's nervous yeah. system. It's so hard. We're, we're not great at it, but we're learning to, you know, if you share something and you say, well, this was really hard. This is how I was mm-hmm. feeling. My job is not to respond or say my side of it, mm-hmm. but simply to repeat back yes. what you yeah. said Yeah, and not to interpret it either. I, I always think I need to put it in my mm-hmm. own words, but to just say mm-hmm. exactly what mm-hmm. you said mm-hmm. Because that is so calming to you to hear that I heard yes. you. And it's funny how even when we know we're forcing it, even if I know you don't mean it, it still feels good. Yes. I feel heard and understood. Yes. And then I'm able to either expand on my my thought or correct yeah. you if you were misunderstanding it. And what happens often for us is we realize, you know, I say something, you repeat it back. And then when I hear it back, I go, actually, no, that's not mm-hmm. what I meant to mm-hmm, say. Mm-hmm. Let me retry mm-hmm. it. And um, I find that it feels um, something about it feels cheesy mm-hmm. or difficult because it it's awkward. Yeah, it's a little yeah, bit awkward. Yeah. And that's our struggle in doing mm-hmm. it. Um, it takes, I think, humility to say, okay, I'm going to do this thing that feels awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to push through. And we had a conversation the other day that that humility, we're finding lately that we're actually growing closer because of, because of Mm -hmm. the humility that Mm -hmm. it forces. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We have to kind of, the masks have to come down in that moment. Yeah. I love that because that's almost like a, in literary terms, like a post-postmodern way of connecting through the awkwardness of it, right? Because the awkwardness is also intimacy building because it is how humbling yeah. that as human beings on we get hijacked by our old patterns our old traumas and it's not our fault unfortunately no one raised our parents teaching them how to raise us no one raised us teaching us how to be good in relationship we don't know at the end of the day mm-hmm. it's it's not our fault our responsibility is to learn new behaviors we're going to keep repeating the same patterns until we actively step in and start building new behaviors, right? And that might feel awkward. Yeah. Riding a bike felt awkward yes. at the beginning, right? Yes, it will be yeah. awkward. And I appreciate your point because if we're speaking to achievers, also giving ourselves grace, yeah. we're not we're not going to get it all yeah, right. We're going to get it all right. And we yeah. will, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and even though I'm trying to improve and then pass this new knowledge down to my kids, like I'm not going to yeah. pass that on right either. Yeah. And uh, but there's still so many wins that we can have in it. Yeah. So can you talk for a minute about needs as mm-hmm. well? I know that 
um, especially in your coaching and in the tools that, that people can access. We'll talk about conflict and moving conflict. How did you talk about it? You had a good little phrase there, moving from con- moving conflict to connection. connection. I think, yeah, like conflict can be right breeding ground for connection. Yeah. Yeah. Which I felt that when you said that phrase, I was like, yes, I think some of our best connection mm. has been when we um, proactively <laughs> worked through yeah, conflict. Yeah, um, yeah. But the needs are me, understanding our needs, communicating our needs, meeting each other's needs. It's such a huge part of it as mm-hmm. well. I know that you're big on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're all interconnected, right? Because I love, I love talking about needs because I remember when I discovered the behavioral science behind needs, it was like, oh, everything makes sense. And simply put, our needs drive, I don't know what the stat is. Like, I'm going to say 90%. I don't know if that's right, but a lot of our behavior, subconscious behaviors. So who we are as individuals, based on our upbringing, based on our childhood patterns, our traumas, we will all have different needs. And those needs will be dictated potentially, you know, by by our parents, even before our parents, like by our cultural upbringing, again, whatever that might be. And these needs are really fundamental to who we are. And so I think it was honestly Tony Robbins who came up with like the, the first list of the core needs. And then you have secondary needs and then you have tertiary needs and the different needs all stem off from each other. So for example, I was working with a client today looking at careers and for him, he kept coming up with, um, he wanted, everything he wanted to do had to be important. Like the word important kept coming mm-hmm. up, important work with important people. Mm-hmm. And so clearly there was a yeah. need for significance, right? A need to feel significant yeah. and to have that kind of influence and that weight. So we all have needs. And parallel to that, when we are in relationship, our partner's needs will be dictating how they behave. And so if we can understand our partner's core needs, we can see through conflict much faster because conflict is typically a symptom of our needs not getting met. It's really that simple, right? So, Mm. and again, we all have different needs. So if we can do the pre-work and understand quite clearly, what are my needs? What are my partner's needs? And then when conflict comes up, okay, I think this is why they're upset or, you know, they're telling me why they're upset. These needs aren't getting met. Is there a way that I can help meet those needs for them now? Right. We kind of like, we yeah. not only through the act of conflict, are we able to communicate different ways that we can get our needs met? And that's the connection yeah. piece, but we also can be empowered to think creatively. Well, if I know that their needs are X, Y, and Z, how can I take the initiative to lean in and repair by meeting those needs? And it might be something similar. Yeah. It's like, you know, I have a big need for safety, for example. I have a really big need for safety. I think maybe even bigger than most. I was doing some therapy the other day and she was like, well, you know, you're a first generation migrant and you come from an Eastern European background and the communism was ending. And there's a lot of like stuff there that your parents uh-huh. inherited and that's impacted you. And so you don't feel safe. I've been traveling for 11 months. You don't feel safe when you're traveling over the whole finance stuff. So just if like, you have a really strong need for safety. And that needs solving for in every respect. And so my partner knows that. And so for him, his big priority is how can I help Cat feel safe? And I think that's like the most lovely thing to receive. Yeah. It's so lovely, right? That's so great. I had a sneaking suspicion recently as we've been working on this. Mm -hmm. Um, We've been talking about needs for a few years and still trying to really, really uncover it. And I found this little quiz from Mike Foster. Mm. He because he has a book called coming out called um, 
primal your primal question which is basically another way of framing your core needs yeah and i had a suspicion lately i even said it out loud to ashley one day i think two weeks ago i said i think for me the deepest thing is uh wanting to be wanted Mm. yeah which in the same way as you like that started a lot of chain reaction light bulbs for me yeah and so I took this little quiz and that's what it spit out wow. was mm. the need to be wanted. And then she took it and we also agreed on hers. And so it was helpful to see that because I don't know about you. I find that the first step in all of this is actually understanding mm-hmm. our what our needs Absolutely. are. Because we could never communicate about it, let alone serve each other yeah. well until we actually knew what some of those things yeah. were. Yeah. Um, but then I, I heard this quote that really resonated that in, in your core relationship with your partner, and it was sp- speaking specifically to marriage, but um, it is not a place to stand up for your rights, mm. but the job of both of you is to try and satisfy the other's needs. Oh, I love that. And I, it stood out so much because it feels very, it almost felt abrasive mm. because culturally speaking, I'm, I'm going to make a generalization, but I think it's such an independence based yes. Yes. society mm-hmm. and then achievers even more so, because we're all about trying to like make our own mm-hmm. way and make it work. And we bring that into our relationship. And we've been realizing lately that we're often trying to do our own thing. And it's not that we don't want to help mm-hmm. the other person, but there's that uh, almost that not competition, but there's something so nice about, no, I'm going to make it my goal to meet your needs and you to make mine. And that just is such a huge boost to the relationship to even know that they're thinking that, let alone to do it. For sure. Uh, sure. But it feels like we're not, we're not really primed that way. The primer feels a little more independence. And as you were saying that, (laughs) no, you're spot on it. As you were saying that, it got me thinking like, is there maybe something around is there like a primal drive that, oh, if this person needs me to meet their needs and they're quote unquote needy, there's something mm. like, as you we were saying that, I almost felt like a revulsion come up of like, right? oh, yeah. they can't look after themselves. Oh, get them exactly. away from me. Exactly. And of course, all of the, which there's, there's real reasons why you would need to protect yourself yes. in situations. Understanding that we get yeah. that. But on top of, but then that bec- that starts to drive our narrative. No, no, no. These are my yeah. rights. And, you know, I help hold up a wall and protect mm-hmm. myself against you. And next thing you know, well, <laughs> we're not actually helping each other at all. Yeah. We're almost we're almost um, at odds mm-hmm. with each other. So I don't know for where for where we were at. That really stood out to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, completely. I think that's again, I think there's such humility that has to be learned to be successful in a relationship, humility, willingness to be wrong, willingness to let our ego down, our pride down, and this kind of like leaning in and yeah, and and leaning and leaning towards our partner, which is really hard, really hard. (laughs) Okay. Well, we could go on for Mm -hmm. a while, but how about, uh, so people can access coaching and the resources that we'll, we'll link to all Mm -hmm. of that. But, um, Maybe in a nutshell, for anyone that's uh, 
maybe haven't thought about some of this mm. yet or is starting to think about it, how would you summarize kind of the the needs and the conflict and what what they could do? Like, what's the first step yeah. they could take in all of this? Yeah, it's so cliche that to be able to connect with others, we have to first connect with ourselves, right? Like if we don't do that inner work, then there's no way that we can become someone who actually attracts that right connection to others. So it all begins with the self. And it just begins with doing some pretty simple, like you said, on Google, you know, and I've got a little needs worksheet, just looking at, you know, when you're feeling calm and stable and you're not going to be interrupted and you can let your mind wander and think freely, doing a, a few exercises on, okay, well, what are my core needs? And if we don't have a worksheet at hand, it's really as simple as thinking about, okay, well, literally, like, what do I need to feel happy and thriving? And just write down whatever comes up. And I know, like for me, for example, it'll come down to feeling, yeah, like safe. I want to be warm. I want to be able to have a lot of freedom. I want to be able to be flexible. I want to be able to manage my own time to, to some extent. Um, I want to be able to eat well, to exercise and just write down everything that comes up. And then again, if you assume you don't have a worksheet or something, can you begin to draw out what different needs you're meeting through all of these different things? So for example, my need for, you know, having flexibility and my need for being able to work online, like working remote for me is a massive thing. It's huge. And that meets my core need for freedom because I have a massive core need for freedom. Then that core need for of freedom also connects to my core need of adventure. I have a need for adventure. Like I want to know that I can work from a different place every month if I wanted to hypothetically. And I want to know that I can talk to different people. That's also one of my needs to be interacting and socializing. That's a need for connection. So just getting curious around like based on all the things that you really love, what are the different needs that you're fulfilling there? Mm. And then if you have a partner, ask your partner to do the same, right? Yeah. Ask them to do well, the same. Well, I was same. just thinking that, uh, you know, past Steve would also object to this mm. one and say, yeah, but there's there's an assumption baked in that then okay what am i going to get all of my needs 100 mm. percent met and i do think we uh, sometimes sometimes we're approaching this uh we can pendulum mm -hmm. swing and people think well then it's 100 percent about me getting everything so that's not no. realistic either well that's not the point the point is the conversation yes. and if we can both articulate what we're wanting then there's a much better shot For sure. at at meeting those needs and honestly than not yeah yeah and and life is literally one long journey of trying to get our <laughs> needs met i mean, just literally if we break it down that's why it's like what do we need money for safety and freedom <laughs> and you know maybe status or significance whatever else people want it for like why do we need a job like same thing self-actualization everything we do in life is just driven by our needs and the more that we can know ourselves and really not to be high achieved in the language, but to optimize our lives, to be able to meet those and pair that with our partner. And this is why when I'm, I'm taking people through my 90 day program, I'm very much like, yeah, before you go out there looking for a partner or looking to build a connection, get to know your needs. Because there's no point building a connection with someone who doesn't want children, for example, or wants to be a digital nomad or whatever, and he's completely at odds with your needs which plenty of people do. And then they realize 10 years down the line and they're like, oh, how did I get here? <laughs> <laughs>